before, I guess before I told Dan where I was coming from uh, with the sermon, I completely forgot the ladies were in James. So I'm in James 2. So we're going to do James uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 18 through 21. James chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. James is a peculiar book. And we talked a little bit, well, at least in some side comments I make about how James is structured. And there's a tendency to, to feel like he's all over the place. Uh, it seems like he switches from topic to topic so quickly. Uh, with no clear uh, reason or no clear transition. Things seem kind of segmented at times. But there's this nice flowing theme that really is there. Uh, and, and it's really concerning God's wisdom and his goodness and his gift, that free gift of faith that, that fills each and every one of us and, and our responsibilities because of that. So... When, it, when you're thinking of it from that standpoint, it, it becomes a little difficult to separate or to, to outline how you approach the chapter. So I said I'm doing 18 through 21. Most of your Bibles probably cut that off uh, at verse 19 through 21 for the paragraph. But hopefully, God willing, as we uh, go through, you see why uh, I separated at 18 through 21. So James 1, 18 through 21, and it reads, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. For many of us, you may have grown up in or around the church. And if you are one of those who grew up in the Christian household in and around the church, there's a tendency to take some things for granted. Perhaps like me, you were baptized at a young age. Taken to Sunday school every Sunday morning and worship service right after. Parents and grandparents who poured into you week after week. You sit. You observe. There's a call to worship, a prayer, a scripture, a song, or a hymn, an offering, a sermon. Week after week, month after month, year after year, there's prayer, there's scripture, there's singing, and there's preaching. It becomes a habit. It becomes second nature to most of us. It's just what you do. It's what you expect, but never quite really make that connection. Never really understand why it's all so important. 
Sure, you recognize your need for faith, your need for Christ. You knew you were a sinner. You knew you were in desperate need of forgiveness. You heard the word preached. You desired to make heaven your home. So you walk the aisle. You speak to the pastor. You stand and you boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone rejoices. Another soul saved, another sinner freed from bondage, rescued, adopted into the household of faith. And then that cycle repeats again. Prayer, scripture, singing, and preaching. Week after week, month after month, year after year. Over the course of our lives, the things that we see frequently, the things that we hear, the experiences that we have, all prepare and condition us. Some things we readily accept, other things we're so quick to reject. Some things we grab hold of and never let go, other things we release just as soon as we see them. In some ways, or in some way, shape, or form, every opinion, every thought, every action, every decision we make is informed by that upbringing, by that preparation, by that conditioning. We may not connect all the dots right away, but when the heat comes, when that fire starts to rage, when the pressure's really on, Every hole, every crack, every weakness in our foundation is then exposed. James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, opens this letter by identifying himself as a slave. He seeks no glory. He avoids any assertion of authority based on his fleshly relationship to Christ. Rather, he seeks to hide himself in the cross. He exalts the Father. He exalts Christ, recognizing his kingship, not simply in heaven, but also on earth and throughout all of creation. There's a connection made, a recognition of the implications of the Lordship of Christ. And so he takes the most humblest of all positions. Yet he was so soaked in the atmosphere and the teachings of Christ that he can, in this letter, just utter them almost unconsciously. By the taking the title of a slave, James numbered himself with those honored, not for who they were, but for whom they served. And he addresses this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, meaning the original readers were Jewish Christians spread throughout the nations. These Christians fled. They dispersed abroad because of discrimination and persecution. When Stephen in Acts was stoned to death for preaching Christ, 
those flames of persecution raged. And it raged against the church. In fact, shortly after the dispersion, James, the brother of John, was also martyred and killed by the sword. Fulfilling Christ's words when he said, indeed, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Persecution was swift. But it was also expected. Christ teaches that if anyone wishes to be his, his, his disciple, there's a, there's a cross waiting for you. It's costly to be a Christian. Many fled. James stayed behind. And no doubt he witnessed firsthand all the atrocities that were occurring. See, the good thing about being dispersed is hopefully you don't have to continue to endure the persecution that led you to flee in the first place. Isn't that the point why we run? Right? Isn't that why we leave? So that we can be safe. So that we can avoid the pain the fear and the harm that might come to us if we stay. But not only that, if Christians would spread, would that not also mean the spread of the gospel? Wouldn't it also mean the fulfilling of the Great Commission? Unfortunately, no good deed goes unpunished. My daughter's studying Isaac Newton. One of his laws is the every action has an equal and opposite reaction. The action of spreading the gospel resulted in the reaction of the persecution of the church. Even in the dispersion, even in these nations spread throughout the Near East, we find that Christians continued to be persecuted. The heat came, the fire raged, the pressure bared its weight down on them and the holes, the cracks and the weaknesses in their foundation became apparent. Rather than loving their neighbor, they became self-centered. Rather than praying for those who hurt them, their anger burned and their words cut. Rather than taking a meek stance, they sought their own justice and vindication. And rather than imaging Christ to all those around them, both within the body and without, they imaged the flesh. What's worse is even today, we don't look very much like Christ. Where there was sickness, he brought healing. Where there was hatred, he brought love. Where there was division, he brought unity. Bondage, he brought freedom. Lies, he brought truth. Confusion, he brought clarity. Darkness, he brought light. 
And though he had every right, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. The reason we fold and crack and often break under pressure, the reason every impure thought and word arises to the surface when the heat seems to get a little too hot to bear because we failed to realize what James realized. We failed to recognize the significance that all we were taught for weeks and months and years, what significance they have on today, on the, the right now, on this earth, in this life. We don't understand the joy of being a slave for Christ. Because sadly, deep down, some of us probably think we deserve better. James shines some light on who we are, who we truly are, and what our identity implies concerning our relationships with one another and our relationships with the world. James starts by reminding us that God is the source of our salvation. Verse 18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. One commentator said that James' point is not simply that God chose, but what he chose to do. The phrase brought us forth in the Greek actually means he gave birth to us. It was God who beget us. No child has ever been born into the world of his own will or plan. They had no say in it from conception to gestation and ultimately birth. All is completely out of the child's control. Every aspect of it. He or she is simply a passive recipient of the will and actions of the parents. Likewise, no person, no human being wills, much less creates a new spiritual nature within themselves. But God, after the counsel of his own goodwill, has begotten us. Every good and perfect gift is from Above, says James, coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The desires of the flesh give birth to sin. And sin, when fully conceived, produces death. But in contrast, by the word of truth implanted in us, God gives birth. To new life. In place of this sorry chain of consequences, James says that God brought us forth, gave birth to us by his gift of life. The present tense of fleshly desires bringing forth sin and death is replaced by this past tense recalling of a decisive action on God's part. This 
moment when his creative power was put forth in bestowing new life. This God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Does that sound familiar? In Genesis, we learn that by the power of his word, God created the heavens and the earth and all that it contains. And here we read again that by the power of his word, God brought forth a new creation. And he calls this word the word of truth to remind us that we cannot enter the kingdom of God by any other door. In 1 Peter, we find blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Secondly, God saves us for a purpose. Verse 18 shows us that God saves us so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That phrase of his creatures is literally translated of all he created. The same word of truth that brought forth his first creation now brings about regeneration, re-creation, redemption of man in anticipation of redemption of all creation. But let's not forget why man needs redemption in the first place. We failed. Adam failed. He and all mankind rebelled against the one true, holy, and righteous God who made us in his image so that we might reflect his image to all creation. Only mankind exists in that relationship. Only mankind responds to God in this reciprocal fashion. Those of you who've been coming on Wednesday nights the last couple of weeks know about the three R's we talked about as it relates to imaging God. To all creation, we're to resemble God's character, represent his kingly rule and enjoy relationship with him, with all creation and with one another. The love, justice, holiness, mercy, kindness, and goodness of the Lord, all the things that characterize his kingly rule are to show up in our lives as we image him in the world. 
But our rebellion has marred that image. Sin has distorted that image. But Christ, who is the word of truth, has restored that image. In the Old Testament, we find that first fruits were those offered to God in thanksgiving. And they became his special possession. The funny thing about the word first, there's really no point in using it unless there's going to be something that follows. Yet we often stand proud. We often boast. And we reject his other creatures, who though they might still be in Adam, nevertheless are still his. All because they might say things that we don't like or things that we disagree with or things that might make us feel a little uncomfortable. Rather than spreading that same word of truth, that same gospel, that same Christ that redeemed us. In verse 19, we're commanded to know this. And it's clear that James is speaking to believers because he uses the term, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why this command? Why this admonishment? Because every single one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know we struggle. And we struggle significantly in these areas. You see, man, flesh, is slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger. Flesh cuts you off mid-sentence. Flesh forces their point and their perspective on you. Flesh, when they don't like what's being said, interrupts over and over again. And if it's not getting through, flesh just talks a little bit louder. Why is that? Because, well, we know whoever talks loudest and gets the last word, they're the right ones, right? We're instructed to be quick to hear, to listen intently, because when we listen, we can gain understanding, or at least an appreciation of the other side. By listening, we can determine what the stumbling block is, preventing them from receiving the message of the gospel. It's by listening that we can model the same actions, the same behaviors that we ourselves would like extended to us. Be slow to speak. This isn't about getting your point across. It's not about beating them over the head with your so-called truth, because doing such a thing shows that you don't really understand it yourself. Proverbs ten nineteen says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips 
is wise. Be wise. But if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And be slow to anger, for he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. There's strength and self-control. There's power in your patience. Rather than be angry, love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. Why? Why should we do any of this? Because the anger of man, our pettiness, our individual anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Think about that for a second. Can you honestly say that the way you treat your worst enemy produces the righteousness of God? What about the co-worker that you can't seem to get along with? Does that relationship produce the righteousness of God? How about the family member that just doesn't want to do right? You know, that brother that every time you hear about him, he's into some other shenanigans. Is your attitude, is your approach to him, to her, is that an approach that produces the righteousness of God? Can we truly say that your demeanor and your attitude towards any of those circumstances achieves the type of righteousness that reflects God's standard? Jesus taught that to be angry with another leads us to stand trial for murder. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that anger resides in the bosom of fools. Angry fools and murderers do not achieve the righteousness of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its Desire. So if we live by the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Lastly, God demands our obedience, both for his glory and for our good. Verse 21 says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That therefore hearkens us back to the truth we've just expressed. God gifting us this new birth, this new identity in Christ, recreating us to be his image bearers, restoring our once shattered relationship with him. And through Christ, 
he does all of these things. Thus, he tells us to put all filthiness and wickedness, the very things that led to our rebellion and our fall, he tells us to put those things away. The very things that separated us from our source of life. He commands us to set aside. In 2 Corinthians 7, we read that since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The former must pass away, the old must die, but it is Since it is believers indwelled by the Spirit of God who James addresses, we're reminded that we are never wholly cleansed from this filth. We're never wholly cleansed from this wickedness in this life. But much like the noxious weeds that seems to pop up in our yard year after year, we ought to constantly make effort to eradicate them every time we see them showing up. And our obedience evidences our faith and our trust in so gracious a God as we receive humbly with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. The psalmist proclaims, it is God who leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. It's the meek who Christ said would inherit the earth, not because of our own merit, but because it is God who grafts us into the true vine, into Christ Jesus and implants his word within us. It's because of him that we've obtained this sure salvation that we may learn to seek and love and magnify the word as a treasure, a treasure that's incomparable. So when we think about how someone who has been so close to Christ, someone who is by blood relation to him, identifies himself as a slave and rejoices in his position as a slave of Christ. We can see that he is resting and hoping in his identity, not of this world, but of his position with God. And the implications of that in his everyday life It's not just about what happens when heaven comes. But God saves us right here. Right now. And he restores us to that position we once had in Christ. As his image bears. That we might reflect him. To all the world. And so all of that 
preparation, all of that conditioning when the pressure comes, when the, the, the heat gets turned up. The things that should be produced rather than weeds, rather than anger and ill speech ought to be fruit that God himself has placed in us, that he himself produces through us. Live for Christ. Achieve his righteousness. For there's no greater purpose for anyone or anything on this earth. Let's pray.